This is episode nine. I am your host, Martin Zoltz Orsbrick. And I'm your other host, Stephen Gray. So later in the episode, Steve will be talking to Susie Moat from UCL about the future ICT project. But before that, Steve, what's your news? So, some of the news I've been following this week is regards to ubiquitous computing. Scary words. Ubiquitous computing, so that's computing that's everywhere? Yeah, so ubiquitous computing is like interacting with computers without realising you're actually interacting with computing it's like oh, an abstraction sinister. away so for example you could say that your washing machine is an example of ubiquitous computing because right. you're actually interfacing with a rudimentary computer when you kind of twist the knobs and press the buttons okay, but yeah taking a level a step away from that i've uh, been looking at some of the work from a uh, carnegie mellon university uh, at pittsburgh Okay. Very big HCI institution. What's uh, HCI? A human computer interaction. Ah. It's a big okay. field in computing science. So what that that's making it easier for people to do work with computers. Is that yeah. the idea? So it's like how do we interface with computers? How do we use computers and thinking about new ways of using computers? Okay. So uh, a researcher over there uh, in Pittsburgh called Chris Harrison has come up with uh, some new interaction techniques. And one of them, which was quite interesting, is called OmniTouch which is a wearable multi-touch interaction computer. Wearable technology, so it's what it, it, it's sort of kind of printed on the sleeve of a shirt or something. Well, well, yes, that is wearable computing, but uh, it's kind of obviously in development at the moment. So for this project, you actually have kind of a shoulder piece that has a small Pico projector, which is a very, very tiny uh, projector. Okay, yeah. And a Kinect sitting on top of it. So that's a, essentially a movement detector, yeah. isn't it? A so, Kinect, yeah. yeah. And kind of wear it on your shoulder, and the Pico projector projects an interface onto, say, your arm or onto a document in front of you. Ah, okay. And you can uh, interact with the document using is there's a computer attached to it but right. you interact with the document through uh, just normal gestures so for example oh, okay. the pico projector projects onto a piece of paper so it can project a keyboard say yeah. and then it will measure when your finger presses a, a button and, and and work out which key it is exactly the computers that we use in our everyday life haven't changed much in design from the early computers of the 80s, you know, personal computers. In terms of desktop computers, yeah, you yeah, mean exactly. laptops. So right. you've got a keyboard, you've got a mouse, and you've got a screen. Mm-hmm. The next big revolution was the mobile technology, as you say, where we've got kind of now touch, we've got smartphones that had touch screens, yeah. and you interact with the touch screen, and you, as you say, you've got the internet in your pocket. Mm-hmm. The next evolution within ubiquitous computing interacting with computers without actually physically sitting down behind a computer so Mm -hmm. another project that the Carnegie Mellon uh, HCI centre have been looking at is a scratchable surface so it's like a microphone attached to a surface like a desk or a wall and you Mm -hmm. scratch and by different scratches different motions so if you say write an A on the wall it has a different scratch pattern to like a B or a tap per se and it means that you can go up to a wall and like control an MP3 player or control something on your computer from anywhere in your house. And so, so if you've got this sort of technology, does it mean that you don't have to? You, I mean, you, you, obviously, you don't have to use a traditional keyboard. Is that going to make it easy if you've got some sort of access issue uh, yes. to, to access your computer? If, you, if you've got limited visit, um, you've got limited sight or limited hearing, will that make it easy for you? To- yeah, for accessibility, these interfaces are amazing because, mm. say, if you. 
if you're blind at the moment and you want to surf on the internet, say, mm. you've got a body of text that the screen reader finds and reads out, and then you've got images that have what are called alt tags, which embedded in the HTML code is a description of the image. Which it just t- tells you what the picture yeah, is. So the screen reader reads out, gives a This audio is a picture description. of a cat laughing, exactly. playing the piano. Exactly. So yeah. for people who are blind, being able to like walk up to a, any wall around the room and actually mm. control something that's happening within that room is phenomenal. It's one of the best use cases of this technology because you don't need to find where the computer is. You don't need to sit down and find where your fingers lie and what key. I mean, blind users are very good at doing that because they've trained themselves to do it. But But they shouldn't have to train themselves. Exactly. We should be able to be in the world of kind of Star Trek where we walk up to a computer and say to a computer, do this for me, and it comes back and goes, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So, Martin, what would you like to bring to the table this week? What does the Occupy London Stock Exchange protest have in common with the Challenger shuttle disaster? Uh, I'm not expecting you to know the answer to that. <laughs> let me think. No, you've got me. No, okay. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get we'll get to that in a second. So, uh, first of all, you you know about the uh, Occupy London uh, Stock Exchange uh, protest, right? Yeah. yeah. So this is something that um, started. This started in Spain originally. There was a group um, called Democracia Ya. Who, said, who, who proposed these protests to, okay. to occupy public locations and protest against the massive inequalities in in, in, um, uh, in income that are happening at the moment because of the global recession, that yet bankers still seem to be making a pretty penny. Okay. Uh, the big famous one was the Occupy Wall Street in New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this has been going on all over the world, and this is um, uh, happening all over the United States, all over Europe. There's uh, occupy, an occupation in London, there's one in uh, Bristol, one in Birmingham, uh, one in your hometown of Glasgow, I believe. Oh, yay. I don't know if I can call Glasgow a town. That's, I'm going to oh, get into trouble with our Scottish listeners. <laughs> the city the noble city of Glasgow. <laughs> I mean, there's some interesting facts. I mean, they, 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 one of the slogans is, we the 99%. Have you heard this uh, this thing? No, I haven't. So are they referring to 1% of the population of these bankers and, and the banking sector who are getting paid a ridiculous amount of money? Well, that's absolutely right. That's that's what the, the, the slogan is meant to represent. Um, the American economist Joseph Stieglitz or Steiglitz, I'm not quite sure the pronunciation, um, uh, claimed that in America, 1% of the population owned 40% of the wealth. Wow. So right. it's, it's, it, it's highlighting this imm- immense inequality, that there's this concentration of wealth and uh, that they're occupying these public spaces. Um, so this is where we get to the technology. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you saw this. The newspaper, The, the Telegraph, uh, ran a headline um, on the, I think it was the 24th of October, uh, which was about... Um, they went to the, this camp where the protesters were, were staying, which is on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral, uh, and they took a, a, an infrared camera and they shone it at these, these tents and they said, oh, well, there's no one in these tents. Okay, so I guess they were looking for thermal signatures of exactly, people inside yeah. to, to actually see, are people actually... Are people there? Are, are they sleeping? just an empty tent? Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, there's a couple of things about this. Um, the f- first of all, someone said, well, this was done at 11 o'clock at night. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was protesting and sleeping, essentially sleeping in a tent on the steps of a, a con- you know, stone steps yeah. of St. Paul's in October in London, I wouldn't be in bed at 11 o'clock at night. Especially if the majority of the protesters are students. Who yeah, but the, the second thing is that um, there's, there's been uh, widespread criticism that they misuse this technology. Okay, so in what way did they misuse the technology? On a sort of trivial level, right, tents, if a tent allows you, radiates all of the heat that's being radiated by the person 
it's not doing a very good job at keeping you warm. Okay, okay. So even apart from the really cheap and crappy tents, they they shield to some degree the view, the the, the heat of the of the uh, the person inside. And at the Guardian, in fact, they did uh, some big article with a military expert who said, well, if you wanted to to um, uh, detect people inside the tent, you'd have to turn up the sensitivity of the camera to a really high level. Um, you know, they've misused this technology. So it's another story of sort of a journalist getting hold of a bit of tech and thinking they know what they're doing and and arguably not getting it right. Okay, so hold up. How does this relate to Challenger then? Peripherally. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, as in the Challenger disaster, uh, it was a shuttle disaster in 1988. Yeah. Um, what happened was there were these rubber rings which uh, maintain the integrity of the, the, the booster rocket. If it got too cold, it would distort, and that would actually stop it working as an effective seal. And that's okay. what happened. It got too cold, it distorted, fuel got out, um, and it caused the destruction. Yeah. And one of the elements which contributed to its failure was the fact that they were supposed to test the temperature of the rocket before launch with a, a thermal uh, imaging gun, much uh, like the ones used by the Telegraph, and they didn't quite get it right. So t- to cut a long story short, they didn't measure the temperature correctly. And so earlier in the week, Steve caught up with uh, Susie Moat, uh, a researcher at UCL working on the future ICT project. So today I'm here with Dr. Susie Moat from UCL. Hey, Susie. Hello. And Susie's in here to talk a bit about her research interests and what she's up to. So over to you, Susie. What are you up to these days? Um, so I spend my time focused on two different things which are related. So um, one of my main tasks at the moment is that I'm helping coordinate a large European project called Futurist. And the goal of Futurist is to exploit the huge amounts of data we now have about the way that people behave and the way that people communicate, which is being generated by their everyday interactions with technology. So for example, they're looking for information on the internet or they're communicating with each other on the internet. But equally, um, for example, your Oyster card, that records where you're going in London or in the financial markets. We can see decisions that people have made about how they want to trade. So essentially, all of this data um, gives us new insight into how large amounts of people behave and a new way of understanding how, how society's behaviour. Okay, so you're taking this everyday technology that we have and we take for granted and kind of trying to build a picture from a global perspective. So the global angle is certainly very important. I should explain, um, Futurist is a 10-year program. Right now we're um, in a preparatory stage so we were given two million euros by the European Commission. Wow that's a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of money but in the long term we're hoping to build a one billion euro research program. One billion so this is this is absolutely huge in research grants because you don't really get a billion euros to do research do you? No absolutely it's gigantic Um, so the Commission saw that in order to make long-term progress they needed to give scientists long-term support so that they could think a bit further, see the long-term impact of their research. Um, And so they were thinking of projects like the Human Genome Project, CERN, things which have had funding over an extended period of time. And so there was a call which went out, which was the flagship call, and it's basically asked scientists to think, what big problem could you solve if you had 10 years and we gave you um, 100 million euros a year? So, so, so futurist, okay, and 
I've seen kind of the website, and we'll put links up to the website for Futurist. It's Future ICT, but Futurist is the short, shortened verb? Uh, it's essentially, we write it Future ICT, yep. but it gets pronounced in both ways. So obviously the ICT is integral because this is where a lot of this data is okay. coming from, big ICT point to um, to analyse this data, but it's also futuristic because it's 10 years into okay. the future. So what problems is Futurist actually trying to solve then? I suppose the general idea is to think of the crises which we're seeing that um, society is coming against in um, in many different types of, of behaviour. So obviously the financial crisis occurred recently, but we also have um, unexpected conflict. We have um, problems caused by unexpected environmental events. Obviously the problems in Japan in the mm. in the recent past, and the idea is to. Um, both to anticipate earlier these crises um, and also understand better what um, impact our actions might have. Um, so by understanding society's behaviour better, we want to be able to anticipate better what society might do in the future to avoid crises, but also to make sure that we make the right decisions in, in the face of crises. So what research are you doing right now? So recently, I've been collaborating with Tobias Price and Jean Stanley and Dirk Helbing on a project where we've shown that by looking at changes in how often people look for certain terms on Google, we can anticipate changes in stock market prices a week later. So how do you actually do that? Does Google give you the data so that you can do these experiments? So Google does make a certain amount of data available about how often people look for certain terms from 2004 onwards. It's a service called Google Trends and it lets you see or lets you get an indicator of about 10% of their data. And then obviously we can link that then with um, information we have about the financial market. Um, in this case, this is particularly the Dow Jones Index. That's kind of cool. So what kind of, was there a direct correlation between what people were searching and how the market performed? Absolutely. So we found that we could actually build a trading strategy that would have made us extremely rich if we'd known about this then, <laughs> where we'd look at how often people had looked for a certain words on Google in a given week. And in particular, we found that words related to the financial market, like housing or debt, for example, yep. were particularly successful. And we'd look at whether the frequency with which they looked for this term went up in a week in comparison to weeks before, or whether it went down. Okay. And if it went up, then we would sell the index and yep. buy it at the end of the next week. Whereas if it went down, we would buy the index and then sell it at the end of the next week. So looking at the historic data is one thing, but what can this actually tell us about the markets right now or what we're searching about right now? So there's a question over what it can tell us about what's going on right now, because um, so if we look at our results, then we do see that they start to tail off towards the end. And this is possibly because Google made this information available. And so people have started to integrate it into the market. But there's an awful lot of data out there. It's, yeah. we, we don't just know about how often people look for things on Google. There's, there's, there's many other types of um, sources of data out there. And so the exciting point is, that um, all of these different types of data to do with online communication are giving us insight into how people are collecting information to inform their own behaviour or how they're spreading information that influence other people's behaviour. Um, and we can perhaps anticipate through this, by analysing this information gathering and distribution process in advance, um, what people's actions are going to be later. 
And so whilst in the in historically this would have perhaps made us rich um, in the future, um, we hope that this might help us anticipate bad combinations of decisions, for example. And if people want to learn more about Futurists and the work you're doing, where can they go to? Okay, so Futurist has a website at www.futurist.eu or we're also on Twitter at at Futurist, so it's F-U-T-U-R-I-C-T. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at, at Susie Moat and would love to talk about this with anybody who's interested in chatting. So all that's left for me to say is thanks Susie for coming in and having a chat with us. Thank you very much. Enjoyed. Not only is that the end of episode 9 of Global Lab, this is the last episode we're going to have, Steve, for, for a little while. Yes, I'm bowing down for the rest of the year, but I'll be back in the new year. Hey! Yay! One of the things we wanted to do with the Global Lab was to keep the presenters fresh and new so they could bring their own ideas and research topics to the podcast. And they don't come any fresher than our new presenter? No, they don't. Introducing everyone, Dr. Hannah Fry! Hello. <laughs> and as part of her, her inaugural duties for the podcast, Hannah is going to read in our contact data, isn't she, Steve? Indeed she is. So from the last time for me, you can get in touch with us through our website. Thegloballab.com You can get in touch <laughs> via Twitter. At Thegloballab or the old-fashioned email thegloballab at gmail.com So until next time, or in fact for Steve, until next year, yep. goodbye! Goodbye! Bye. Bye. Bye.